I came out of an industry where lots of stress, lots of things that we were doing. The idea behind this is to enter it, enjoy ourselves, uh, make people happy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to today's episode of the For the Love of Data podcast. I'm your host, Robert Furr, and I'm excited to come to you with part two of a two-part series about yummy, yummy chocolate, where I sit down with Brian Mitikin, the the owner and founder of Casa Chocolate in uh, San Antonio. If you haven't listened to part one, uh, step back and listen to that for an overview of the history of chocolate and how to make chocolate where we go into some great detail there and give people some tips. In today's episode, we talk a little bit more specifically about the types of chocolate, uh, the science versus art of chocolate making, and how Casa Chocolate approaches chocolate making with a data-driven approach. Uh, So in both episodes, you'll find some helpful tips if you're getting into this and things to look out for. Uh, You can find show notes uh, for the last episode and the current one at ForTheLoveData.com where we've got some links to helpful resources and some of the graphs and data that we talk about. Uh, Before we get started in today's episode, I am going to share some data that we talked about briefly, uh, but that we found in some of our research. Uh, Some of the uh, information that we found was about the biggest chocolate consumers per capita across the world. Switzerland comes out on top with an average of 19.8 pounds of chocolate consumed per capita each year. That's almost 20 pounds of chocolate per person. That's an amazing amount. I didn't look up a happiness index, but I figured they've got to be pretty high on that list just from that alone. Germany is number two with 17.4, and then Ireland, the UK, and Norway round out the top five. Uh, The U.S. is number nine with nine and a half pounds. I probably uh, supplement that a little bit more than nine and a half pounds, but you can find that information uh, on our show notes. Uh, Some of the other things that we found that were pretty interesting is that the U.S. accounts for 20% of the world's chocolate consumption. So one out of every five bars of chocolate is consumed in the U.S. On an average Valentine's Day, nearly $400 million of chocolate is purchased around the world, and that accounts for 5% of the chocolate industry's total sales, so 5% for that one day alone. For those of you that get late-night munchies, 22% of all chocolate is consumed between 8 p.m. and midnight, and so if you're trying to do intermittent fasting or you're trying to adopt the keto lifestyle, you might want to lay off of that uh, unless it's immediately after dinner. Otherwise, you're going to fall into that 22%. Uh, Good news is chocolate significantly reduces theta activity in the brain, which is associated with relaxation, which is why we want to eat chocolate when we're feeling stressed out. Uh, I looked at some myths and facts, and it turns out that chocolate is high in caffeine is actually a myth. Um, It only contains about 6 milligrams a bar, which is about the same as a single decaf coffee. So if you were to eat a whole Hershey bar, you'd get about the same as one cup of decaf coffee. Uh, I myself used to love milk chocolate, but over the past years I've gotten into making my own and trying to do some keto chocolate. I have uh, started moving more and more toward dark chocolate, and I now hover around a 72-75% is my preferred amount, going all the way up to about 80-85%. I'm not quite to 100% yet, but I'm working my way up there. But milk chocolate is the strong preference of most Americans. 70% of Americans prefer milk chocolate over dark chocolate. 
And as far as records, in 2011, Thornton's created the world's largest chocolate bar. It was 12,770 pounds. That's over six tons. And it was a bar that was 13 feet by 13 feet by one foot. I couldn't imagine trying to dive into that, much less uh, try to pick it up and uh, put a wrapper in that. Uh, I've got some uh, sales information uh, for top companies. So the top company by sales is Mars Wrigley, followed by Ferrero, and then Mondelez, and I've got a, a top 10 rounding that out. Uh, and then if you look at the top 10 world cocoa producers, you'll see a rise in production over time starting in the late 80s and uh, rising all the way through 2016, which is where the data goes. The Ivory Coast leads the way far and away as the number one producer, followed by Indonesia, Ghana, and Nigeria. And you can see the rest of the uh, top producers between 1978 and 2017 if you take a look at that graph. Uh, so that's all the deep dives I'm going to do on data for this episode. Now we're going to uh, switch over and hear more from Brian uh, in the second part of this episode and what Casa Chocolate does to use data to produce a delicious, consistent chocolate and how they're balancing the art and the science of chocolate making. So let's take it away with Brian. I want to switch gears now and talk a little bit about um, some of the things that you do from your process engineering background uh, to ensure consistency and some of the science and really the the data-driven part of, uh, of your production, uh, you know, the types of equipment that you use, how you ensure a repeatable process. So uh, tell me tell me what you do there. Okay. Well, again, like we said, I think the, the two areas that we pay the most attention to, uh, assuming you've sourced it, you've tested the beans, you've stored them properly, the two main areas where we see big variability that we have to control are going to be in the roasting process and the tempering. In the roasting side, we, we try to eliminate variables. So I've got a, a large, uh, it's an X coffee roaster. It's a big, you know, uh, three kilo coffee roaster that's been fitted with, uh, multiple temperature probes so we can monitor the temperature of the actual bean mass and not just the air. So we're looking at differential readings between the air and the beans so we know what the beans are actually experiencing. Uh, there's a PID controller on it so that we can control a gas valve. So that every time when I load the things with, you know, if I put in a couple of kilos of beans, I always know what the volume of, what the thermal mass of the beans are, if you will. It's the ice cube example we had before. That gets loaded at the same time. If you look at the graphs, you'll see there's a reduction in temperature. And then the most important thing that we've done is look at what's effectively rate of rise, rise over run. We want to know that we're not ramping up the temperature too fast or too slow. In the old days, you would have somebody sitting there with their hand on the gas valve and watching it and saying, oh, you know, it's moving too quickly, it's getting too hot, and they turn the gas down. We do that with some software we wrote and a PID controller, which effectively does what that human would have done. It looks at it and says, okay, with this amount of gas, with this much applied heat, if you will, I'm getting this much change in the output. And what we want to do is to be very careful that we don't ramp it up too quickly. Uh, so you really want a nice, smooth slope of change over time as opposed to a bunch of little sawtooths. And that's really what we do for roasting is to try to, and again, it's, you, you've heard me say it, repeatability is the key. I always want to be able to load three or six kilos into the roaster. I want to know that it's always going to respond the same way as far as the thermal mass and the thermal gain of the system goes. Uh, and we want to record everything. 
if I find out that I've done something where, uh, you know, there was a spike in temperature or we lost gas or something happened, you know, something odd in the process, we know that we can record it and decide whether or not it's an issue. So you said that you wrote some software yourself for this, and you essentially created a custom model to uh, to be able to do this in a repeatable fashion. Right. We can set points along the way. So there's set. It's a set point controller. We can say at two minutes I want it to look like this, and then you can say I want it to rise at you know two degrees or three degrees per minute. Let's say just picking a number, and the the controller is designed to look at that. And again, remember that. What we're looking for is the total volume of heat added to the beans over a period of time. So it's it's the integral of whatever's under that curve. So we're basically integrating under the curve, and we're also paying attention to what what the time is for each change. So as we do that, we can make adjustments. And again, it's it's not that we can do it once. It's that we can do it 50 times over and over and over and know that the gas and the amount of heat applied is always going to respond the same way. Compare that back to where we started talking about the way you're doing with your with your roast in the oven. You you can imagine that every time you open the oven door, if your if your house is at 73 degrees and your oven was at 200, how much of that air inside the oven are you losing each time? If you leave it open for a minute versus half a minute, if it takes you 15 seconds to shake the tray, all of those are variables that cause your oven to restart the cycle. Which means what you've done today isn't going to be what you've done tomorrow. And as we've learned, the enormous amount of variability is in the roasting cycle. So you want to control those variables. And it doesn't take much. It's a couple thermocouples and, uh, you know, just making sure you're tracking all this stuff. It can actually be done by hand, but it's just a pain. So I know John from Chocolate Alchemy has uh, released plans for several things like a winnower, and uh, he actually worked with uh, some uh, a manufacturer to release some equipment. Have, have you thought about releasing uh going into the production of equipment like this to sell to other people? Uh, we're talking about it. We actually have developed a rate of rise calculator, and I've talked to John about it. Um, it's something we may release, uh, you know, any release. Uh, since I'm semi-retired, I, I'm not sure I want to do that. But, um, <laughs> it, yeah, we actually developed it. We may put it out as freeware. As it's Arduino-based, and so it may just be okay. something we put out as, you know, everybody, and just let everybody support it. It's probably a little easier. It's not a very complex device. I feel like, uh, I don't know how profitable this would be, but I feel like there is a machine learning algorithm on the horizon that could take in some information about a bean and its particular taste profile uh, along a, a number of characteristics and then recommend the, the best roasting profile and the best uh, conking profile. Uh, you know what's interesting about that is that there is, you know, as much as I enjoy the science of this and the control side of it and the repeatability, the one thing that none of us can do is to really quantify smell. And you really can't quantify taste because if you and I try something, our palates, I mean, you know, go back to the brisket, right? If, if you and I both make the brisket, I may think mine's wonderful. You may think yours is wonderful. And we may have very different opinions of each other's. It's part of what makes all of this exciting. And this is part of the art versus the science. I, I always tell people that the, the science supports what the art does. Uh, it makes it repeatable. Whereas if you're just out there sort of flailing along and, and doing something different every time, once in a while you hit a good bean, uh, because we can't quantify smell in an easy way and say this has 12 units. You've seen spider graphs and things like that to try to talk mm -hmm. about it. But mm -hmm. 
you know, the same set of chocolate bars with five different professional tasters will probably have a slightly different uh, uh, spider graph on it. Uh, even if you drink, you know, if you drink a lot of Diet Coke or something beforehand and then you taste, it's going to taste different. Chocolate bars tasted over time will taste different. So there is a variability in the system. I think what we're trying to do is to reduce that variability to something that's controllable so that if you do have something that's different in a, in a, in a bean run, and all of a sudden your bars are tasting different, you don't have to question 70 variables. You have to question two. That makes sense. I, I wanted to ask you about science versus art and if you if you fell on one side of the spectrum or the other, because in my mind, I, I try to yeah. cook with as much science as possible. I, you know, I have sous vide. I have a pellet grill. I have uh, these, like, Bluetooth thermometers that you can stick five probes and something uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and see all of that. So I'm very much a tell me exactly what temperature it needs to be to be a certain taste. And I kind of contrast myself with the, uh, you know, kind of like the, uh, the stereotypical Italian uh, mother or father who's, uh, you know, never cooks the same recipe twice. They just dump a bunch of sugar in and a bunch of salt in and, and, and so on. And I kind of thought that there was maybe two different camps as far as uh, – people's approach to chocolate, but it sounds to me like you're right. It, it's got to be a, a combination of both, particularly if someone's going to do mass runs. Um, do you know any other manufacturers out there that, that fall much more on the on the art side and basically every batch is unique and they don't claim to have anything, uh, uh, you know, consistent? No, I mean, and I've met, a, I've met a lot of the people that do this. I think here's where, here's where it separates. Um, let's take somebody like Theo Chocolates or some of the bigger chocolate manufacturers out there. When somebody buys their bar, they want the same bar they had last time. A Hershey's bar, no matter where you are in the world, is going to taste like a Hershey bar. Good, bad, or indifferent, it's going to taste the same. If you go to McDonald's anywhere in the world, it's going to taste the same. That's really not who we're talking to. On the other hand, the people that buy our chocolate do want the same chocolate. They understand that they're getting a much higher quality bar. They're getting something special. I can probably get away with, you know, a 20, a 2017 versus a 2018 fermentation. But my job when I'm mass producing and mass producing is probably an unfair word, hundreds of bars at a time, right? As opposed to millions. I want repeatability because when I started, I really enjoyed what you're talking about, which is I get a bunch of beans. I throw in a roaster. I fool around with them and it would be a fun thing each time, but I couldn't repeat it. I couldn't go back to it, even within the same run. If I bought five kilos and roasted one kilo and didn't really pay attention to what I was doing or didn't pay attention to conch time or didn't pay attention to some of the other things within that roasting process, I couldn't repeat it, which is kind of annoying. Um, On the other hand, with tempering, you have to be science-based. I really, I don't believe that it makes sense to get all the way through this process and not have repeatability and tempering because you'll end up with all of this time. And even your experience, you just remelt all the bars and start over. But at least you're not starting from conching and from roasting and all that. I think the roasting process, because it has so many variables in it and because it takes a long time and has a lot of embedded labor into it, you really do want to be fairly careful with it. It's a personality thing too, right? I mean, you're talking to a guy that likes to do controls. So <laughs> I'm not going to be one out there just saying, hey, let's just you know, willy-nilly do whatever we want. So take me through the process as you were getting used to this. And, uh, you know, how, when you were getting started, how many batches were you making? How many times a week in order to isolate out these variables and uh, come to some, 
uh, consensus on, on, on what was your preferred approach in each of these pieces? So my, I have a, a fairly straightforward approach at this point. I will uh, first read a lot about the bean. And if, if anybody's out there looking at bean profiles, it's a lot like reading about uh, wine. It's all wonderful. It's all the best. It's all in 94 out of 100. So we try to look at areas of the world. And I think one of the things that everybody can do is go buy a couple of bars from all of the major regions. Uh, you know, So buy some Dominican, buy some Ecuadorian, buy some Peruvian, buy uh, some West African bars, buy bars from all over the world that are truly uh, sole source bars so you understand what they taste like. Because most people will decide that they don't like certain tastes. And I'll give you a great example. Um, in Texas, we get a lot of, uh, we have the ability to get beans from uh, Mexico, from Chiapas region, one of the states in Mexico. I think they're the worst beans in the world. I cannot make them work. They taste smoky. I've tried them from a bunch of people, so I know that I'm not going to like Chiapas beans. That gets them off my list. Uh, so what we do is we decide what we want. Currently, we're using a lot of Vietnamese and Ecuadorian beans, and we're blending them. Uh, what we'll do is we'll get a batch in and we'll do exactly what we talked about before. I generally started about 15 minutes and I'll do every two to three minutes also smelling along the way because a burned bean that goes too far is very obvious. So you'll, you'll design parameters that say, here's your start, here's your end. And then you'll get a sense for what they taste like. And so sample number one at 15 minutes may be still a little astringent and a little bitter, whereas number 17 gets rid of the astringency. And at 19 minutes, it's a little burnt. So you'll do a second run uh, between those times, and you'll just hone down the times. The other thing that's really important is, again, talking about variables. When you dump the beans out of your roaster, whether you're doing it in an oven or you're doing it in a, in a rotary roaster, cool them quickly. Because your the cooling time is actually it's just like a roast or just like a, a brisket, right? You wrap it, it continues to cook. One of the things we found is that if we put fans above everything and rapidly cool, or our roaster does that as well, it takes care of some of that variability. So you don't have to worry about cooling time. So once you get a general flavor profile you like, and again, that means you have to winnow them. You have to go through the whole process and make candy or chocolate. You've got to actually get through and make the bars. Then you'll get a sense for what you like. And so now are, are you – Redoing that process essentially every year or every twice a year as new uh, as new uh, shipments come in. I'm I I generally think about what I want to do, and it's it's far less scientific and methodical than I'm going to make it sound. But we have uh, about 800 kilos of some beans here that we're going to work through as our production beans, right? So they're they're the ones that we sell in the stores. They're the ones that are out there. Those are our production beans. I'm always looking for interesting new things. So we, on a regular basis, will get two to five kilo samples in here, play with them, make notes. And if I decide I want to do something special or if we have a client that wants something very different, uh, if we've got a wine tasting we're doing or a whiskey tasting we're doing, and we want to pair it with certain flavor profiles, I'll go back to the book and say, okay, this bean from Belize had these flavor profiles. I think it's going to go well with these wines. And we'll actually make a batch that way. But from a production point of view, you kind of have to lock in and say, this is what I want. From a small craft maker point of view, if you're just doing it in your kitchen and you enjoy doing it and you want your friends to try chocolate, go crazy. You know, go get a whole bunch of two kilo samples and just try them and see what happens. Again, I think the issue is the variability. It needs to be the thing you control so that if you're roasting the beans, 
at even 17 minutes each time, you know, pick a time that you do the same way. So if you decide that you're going to throw them into your oven, not open the oven, you're going to you know, hook the oven up to 275, open it, throw the beans in there and leave them in there for 15 minutes. And that's your thing that you do. As long as you're consistent about it, at least you take those variables out of the equation and you can see what you're doing. You've got to figure out what you're looking for, right? It's the old hypothesis problem. You're trying to see whether you're changing. Are you trying to isolate a bean taste you like? Or are you trying to say, I want an Ecuadorian bean and I want to get the most out of it I want? It's just a matter of what you're looking for. You're taking me back to eighth grade science class in uh, memorizing the steps of the scientific method. Correct. <laughs> Uh, so what's a typical uh, week for you like now? You've, you've got your processes established. You've got Casa Chocolate uh, up and running. So is it like Monday you're making a run for a wine tasting, Tuesday you're, uh, you know, trying out a new batch, Wednesday you're you're making bars for uh, retail sales? What's a typical week like? We, we kinda ha- no, we kind of have an interesting rule. I For our production stuff, we will generate – uh, up to 100 pounds of chocolate that's always ready on the shelf. So, you know, there's arguments about whether chocolate ages or not, but it's it's always sitting there on the shelf. And if I need to make a production run of bars, it, whether I'm adding pecans or the cayenne or anything else to it, uh, I can make those very quickly because all I have to do is melt it, temper it, and produce bars. And I can do that in the morning. So that's not a bad thing. One of the, the things that I promised myself when I started doing this is that it was always going to be fun. It's sort of the cardinal rule. So, if I come in and I decide that I want to play around with a bunch of beans that got sampled to me, which is what we're doing this week, uh, I take the time and I do that. And if, if I get a call and I need to you know, deliver a bunch of bars to somebody or we've got a distributor who needs a bunch, uh, we'll go ahead and do that as well. But generally, the packaging is done. All of those other things are effectively ready for bars at any time. So we don't have to spend a lot of time uh, worrying about all of those other nitpicky things that are kind of a drag on your on your uh, fun. And I want to take it back to, like, say, 2014 when you were first getting started. How often were you doing batches, small batches then to isolate these variables? Were you doing, like, two batches over a weekend, or were you taking, you yeah. know, several days at a time, or what that look like? It's about a week for me. My, my experience has been by the time I decide – so let's say I get a batch of beans in on a uh, Friday, right? It's, it's, so I get a couple of kilos of beans in from somebody to try by the time I roast it, winnow it, because uh, obviously you can't winnow as soon as you roast. You have to wait a little bit of time for everything to cool down. But by the time you go through all those processes and grind everything and then add the sugar, it's about five days in reality to get it to the point where it's 15 to 20 microns so that you're pleased with it. I try different grinding times, uh, you know, the, the whole melanger, whether I do it for two days or four days. I tried all sorts of things. But in the beginning, it was always – just the experience. It was never really a timing issue. And I would generally do about a kilo. That was sort of my typical. I'd buy two to five kilos, and I'd generate about a kilo each time of, of final chocolate. Uh, bar it up, test it, give it to friends. We did a lot of blind taste testing. A lot of people in mean, my whole family was trying things going, oh, that's nasty. Uh, <laughs> my wife has a very good palate. She, she's very good at detecting flavors, profiles. Uh, so we just try things. We take it to other people that we knew. And I think Part of the fun of this whole thing, before you make it into a business, is literally the process of trying the different flavors, trying the different beans, experimenting with what makes – I mean, think about We've talked about the roasting. You could spend weeks on one bean just playing with roasting profiles. 
and then it's going to change the next year when when it comes out from uh, that exactly. same region again. <laughs> exactly, and you and you do get a more sophisticated palate over time. You do get the sense, you know, you can try something. If you get another batch of you know Vietnamese beans in next year, you can taste mold pretty quickly, and you can taste other things pretty quickly. Uh, because the deviations from what you have in stock uh, as a taste sample, you, we keep samples back, obviously. Have you had any challenges where you, you know, purchased 100 kilos from a region and when it got to you it was all moldy or something like that? No. No, we're, because we're buying from small people and we know who we're buying from, uh, there's probably four or five very well-known distributors in the United States. And they come in on the East Coast or they come in, in Oakland or they come in, in New Jersey. Uh, they're pretty careful about that because if they mess up with anybody, we're all going to know. Now, they're all good marketers, right? I mean, they'll all come to every show and tell you that every bean they just got is absolutely fantastic. Um, but we found, you know, going back to what we said in the beginning about the openness of this industry, they're really good people. Uh, I have yet to meet anybody who's a better salesman than they are caring about what they're selling. They really there's a real sense that they're trying to develop fine flavor beans. They're trying to make sure that consumers get the interesting experiences. Uh, we're, you know, it's, it's, it's supposed to be fun. And I think that's part of what they bring. They really don't care whether you're buying five kilos or you're buying 500 kilos to their point of view. Obviously they'd like you to buy more, but experience so far has been very, very good with the entire industry. And I have not had what we hear about horror stories where people buy a metric ton and it's all moldy. Good. And that's refreshing to hear about this industry versus some others that are just out there to, uh, you know, push volume and uh, not really oh, caring yeah. about the experience of the customer or anything like that. Uh, right. So yeah. what's next for Casa Chocolate? What's what's the story on the horizon? I think, um, again, we're trying to be careful about how large we get and what we don't want this to ever become something where it's a factory, right? We want it to be fun. We want it to have some flexibility in what we're doing. Uh, I came out of an industry where uh, lots of stress, lots of things that we were doing. This, the idea behind this is to enter it, enjoy ourselves, uh, make people happy. There's nothing more fun than watching people taste one of the cayenne bars. And, you know, they taste the crunch, the chocolate melts over their tongue, they go, oh, this is wonderful, deep dark chocolate, but there's no cayenne, there's no heat. And then all of a sudden, the back of their throat, they have this warmth that occurs. And there's a smile. We saw it at the show. Everybody was smiling. And that's a fun experience. Uh, learning about the farmers and talking to people about how to make chocolate better. Learning every show we go to, every time we talk to somebody, we learn a little something that makes it better and more fun. I'm, I'm so happy that I met you, and I look forward to seeing you again at the, at the next one. Uh, if people are interested in Casa Chocolate, what's the best way for them to reach out to you and learn more about your products? Uh, we have a website. Obviously, we've got e-commerce on it, too. It's casachocolates.com. We also have a Facebook page, and the Facebook page is Casa Chocolates Texas. Uh, we post to there fairly regularly. We are working on a science of chocolate section for the website where we're going to post uh, more and more of this information, but we always do tell people that chocolate alchemy is probably the Bible of the industry. Uh, you will learn more by watching videos and watching John do things. He is a wealth of information. Uh, I think most of us out there would not be doing what we're doing if it wasn't for him or what he's contributed uh, to the whole industry. Uh, it's, it's an amazing site, and I think that, you know, 
what we can do is to help other people do what we're doing and learn from other people so that this is a never-ending story. We just enjoy ourselves. Yeah, I've learned a lot from there, too. There's some great video resources and a lot of uh, blog posts and forum posts and everything. So it's been, it's been a tremendous resource for me as well. Uh, I, I want to sum up again. I know we talked about this in the, in the first part, but if somebody wants to get started at home, um, the easiest thing to do is probably get some pre-roasted beans and, uh, and start with those. And y- you can make it by hand, but it's going to be a little bit gritty. Um, you probably want to get uh, a, a Mellinger very quickly if you want to start trying to get um, toward the, the smoother side of it. Any other major tips for somebody that, uh, that, that wants to get started at home? The only other thing is probably a grinder of some sort. You know, they make the premier grinders, and the idea there is to be able to crush the nibs into uh, a paste, if you will, so that it works in the grinder. Uh, you know, all of this stuff's available online. Uh, you can get it from John over Talk It Alchemy, obviously. Uh, the grinder runs, I think, around $200 new. Uh, they're available used all over the place because people use them for juicing. Uh, I would warn people that they do need to buy good equipment. Uh, in other words, if you use your blender at home, you're probably going to break it. Uh, if you know, There's nothing wrong with trying to roast in your oven if you decide that you want to be a roasting person. But I think to understand and enjoy the process, uh, the easiest thing to do is to start with pre-roasted beans so that somebody's taken out all of those variables. Work on your tempering techniques, work on your uh, molding, and get to the point where you know what the chocolates taste like. It's far more fun to buy five different varieties of pre-roasted nibs Grind them yourself, play with that process, and then once you kind of know what profiles you want, go back and say, okay, I want to become Mr. Roastmaster, and then buy yourself some uh, raw beans and try that. Very good. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with me and, and taking the time here. I'll be sure to uh, put your contact information and the Casa Chocolate website uh, in the show notes. And I highly encourage everybody to, to go out and look at some of these resources and play around. And if you have questions for me or Brian, please feel free to leave a comment. I'll make sure that gets back to Brian. And, again, thank you so much for sitting down with me, and I'll, I'll, I'll definitely take you up on your offer at some point in the future to get together and talk about brisket. Oh, excellent. Very good. I appreciate it. Chocolate and briskets, what a deal. We hope you're enjoying the For the Love of Data podcast. If you are, please support us by leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts, such as iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. To stay plugged in to all things data, subscribe to our mailing list at fortheloveofdata.com. You can also find show notes for all our episodes on the website as well. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's topic or ideas for future episodes. To get in touch, tweet us at loveofdata or at Robert Furr on Twitter. Thanks for joining us, and until next time, keep spreading the love of data to the world around you.